What's up, my Impact Theory family? It's Tom Bilyeu, and I want to take a moment to express my heartfelt gratitude to you guys, our incredible listeners. Your support, your feedback, your unwavering commitment to your own growth inspires and drives us every day. And I want you guys to know how important you are to all of us here, especially me. And for those voracious listeners, you know who you are, I've got something really exciting to share with you. If you're truly dedicated to achieving greatness, check out the Extra Impact subscription channel exclusively on Apple Podcasts and Supercast. With the Extra Impact subscription, you'll get all new episodes delivered ad-free, exclusive access to bonus content, including keynote speeches, AMAs, weekly motivation, and previously unreleased episodes. And you'll also have subscriber-only access to five additional podcast playlists with hundreds of archived Impact Theory episodes curated into themes to help you streamline your transformation journey. So if you're ready to take your personal growth journey to the next level, head over to Apple Podcasts, Supercast, or check the links in the show notes and subscribe to the Extra Impact subscription. It's your key to unlocking the greatness within you. Thank you guys again so much for being a part of this incredible community. Remember, the world needs more people that have come alive, double down on your own improvement, and you will be shocked at how far you can go. All right, until next time, my friends, be legendary. (laughs) It is so much fun to be sitting across from you, dude. Dude, it's great to uh, see you again. You know, I feel like we do this once a year. We, We are really close to that, whether it's on camera or off. And one thing that got me thinking about this show, which by the way, everybody, welcome to Conversations with Tom Bilyeu, Jason Silva here today. Thank you um, very much. Was the evening that you and I spent with Jamie Wheel. In the Petit Hermitage. Yeah, like just out on, uh, under the the stars. It was a wicked cool evening talking about all kinds of shit. And it was one of those times where because there were no cameras, because it was just three Mm -hmm. people riffing and talking with no worry about how you come across or where your thought process is, you could really think through it. That that really planted a Mm. seed for me Mm. to start thinking, is there a show format where I can explore my thinking in real time? Because I love impact theory. I love what it's become. It's, it is an amazing platform for me to feature somebody and to give them a platform to really rock through the ideas that are already Mm -hmm. solid. But all of my change happens in the researching process. Mm -hmm. And then I'm just trying to take them somewhere where I know they fucking shine and where they're really going to add value. But it, it wasn't allowing me to advance my own thinking in real time to push my ideas that are sort of at the edge. And everybody talks about if you want to develop, you've got to get mm-hmm. outside that comfort zone. You've got to be reaching for something that you mm-hmm. kind of understand, mm-hmm. but like you're just beginning to grap- grapple with it and put it together. Mm-hmm. And so wanted to create something that was more free flowing, longer format mm-hmm. and more intimate, more intimate. That's the fucking word. I've been yeah. talking to the team about that, like how we create that level yeah. of intimacy. Intimacy is huge. Well, it, it, even we're, we've begun. We have we, begun. We rec- okay, it, is, great. it is that seamless and wonderful. <sighs> wow. Well, great to be here with you. Dude, great to have you. Thank you. Um, a thousand percent. I salute you for you. what you're doing in the world. Um, it's been wonderful to watch you grow from it's afar. Crazy. Um, crazy. You were so kind and generous to me the very first time I was a guest on your show i guess even before impact theory yeah, inside, inside quest. quest yeah 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 and i just felt an immediate kinship with you and with your heart and what with you want what with what with what you want to do in the world 
and um, it's just been great to see you shine. Dude, you really, um, I don't think you know how much you impacted my trajectory. So when I, so I grew up in an age without social media, without the internet. And so yeah. I was really suspicious of social media when it came along. Yeah. I was really terrified someone was going to steal my identity. That sounds so stupid uh -huh, now, uh -huh. especially someone that's had like so much fraud and yeah. I've had to fucking deal with that yeah. and go through it. But yeah. before it ever happened, I was like just ultra paranoid. So I lied about my birthday on Facebook and all that. Oh, funny. But my social, like I understood it as a marketer. And that was how we built Quest was all social media. Yeah. So I got that, but like I didn't understand. I'm not um, at this point, I will say, and certainly this is true back then as well. Yeah. I'm not extroverted. So I didn't have a need to be in front of the camera or anything uh -huh. like that. And I was really resistant. And my chief marketing officer was like, dude, I'm telling you marketing has changed. You really understood it in the beginning, but you're losing touch with what it is now. And where it's going is this personal branding and really having a voice and not letting the company be nameless, faceless. And you talk about that behind the scenes, but you're not really living it in marketing. I was like, no, 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 I don't wanna be out front. Like that's not interesting yeah, to me. For sure. And then he showed me your fucking shots of awe. <sighs> and I was like, holy shit. And the level of of awe of your ability that I had was, it bothers me a little bit because I was so convinced, and we talked about this last time, but I was so convinced that it was natural talent. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't fathom that I could push my skill set like that. Mm -hmm. And that was the first sort of shot across the bow that made me think, fuck, am I really prepared mm -hmm. to let somebody outpace me mm -hmm. that hard? Let is me it, see if I can do this. Isn't it interesting how our sense of self can get agitated <laughs> when when we witness something that i guess reflects um or mirrors something within ourselves that we feel like we want to let out but we haven't been able to yet um it's a it's a trapping of the ego when the fact that someone else shines feels like it impedes upon our own capacity to shine it's almost like we come from a scarcity mindset and we think that there is no room for two people to shine. I'm like, well, that guy's excellence somehow diminishes the space in which I can stand. Mm. And I've experienced that as well. Like I've experienced that feeling. I know that disquiet, you know, it's, it's, it's somehow the existence of another negates my own. Mm. Um, but that can't be true. It's not true you know what i mean like that 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 is that is that is a trapping of the ego that is also a trapping of comparison you know mm -hmm. i think comparison is only healthy if it inspires you to want to do better yes not if it makes you vain and bitter yes which it can do to to all to, to all of us dude you know what's so weird about that to me though yeah. is proximity is is such a huge part of that. You compare yourself to the people you see every day, and I know you love movies, so yeah. there was a line in, um, oh God, I can, Silence of the Lambs, mm, that really that fucking landed so with me. Oh my God, that movie's so good. And this moment landed with me really hard. And he said, you don't seek out things to covet, you covet what you see every day. Ah, the chills. So, Oh, I love that right? movie, dude. It's so good. <sighs> and yes. that is one of those covet where the people day. that you're mm. around, mm they're going to influence you in a terrifying way. Mm -hmm. 
because you're just around them. So you don't think to look beyond them. They're the people that you encounter. And this is why I think people have to be so careful with who they follow online, how they cultivate their online world, because it used to be, you couldn't get too freaked out because there were only so many like incredible people around you. But now it's like, fuck, you can curate this feed of people who are extraordinary at the very thing that you want to be extraordinary at. They're better than you. They're farther ahead. And you can convince yourself that you can't get there. And it becomes like this where you're, you're, in this weird thing yeah. where you're inspired by them, but like you said, it's also diminishing their sense of self. Mm-hmm. You have to be crazy. Well, it's very interesting, that. right? Because they say, you know, on a small scale, you become the people that you hang out with yes. because of the mutual mental mirroring that occurs when you interface with other humans. You can't help um, the process of osmosis by which you mirror and or acquire the qualities of that which you surround yourself with, including the people you surround yourself with. Um, and... But what can also happen is you can compare yourself to Mm -hmm. the people that you're around. And that might be oppressing in a constrained environment like high school where you're limited to that scale of that world. And so if shit, man, if like that's the popular guy and you can't be popular, like you're fucked. There can only be one prom king or there can only be one guy that's the best at math. And one of the um, kind of liberation one of the liberations of graduating high school is that you can graduate into a much bigger world Mm. where you're not as constrained where you're free to find your voice and there's enough room for everybody to be who they want to be how do you Um, do that though but but then what happens now with people like us like you were saying okay so now you're not surrounded necessarily just by the physical people that are around you which is again is a constrained limited size Mm. um now you're also surrounded by the feeds you follow you're surrounded by the Instagrammers that you follow. And so every time you scroll, you become what you behold, but you also compare yourself with, and it can give you the illusion that the world and the the marketplace is smaller than it actually is. And so it's like, shit, that guy's got a million followers. Mm. Like he's eclipsing my capacity to have a voice or that guy's got 500 million likes. He's somehow eclipsing the integrity of the work I'm putting out. But that's also an illusion. And I'm reminded of how much an illusion that is simply, you know, you, you fail to realize the hedonic adaptation. It used to be, oh, your video gets 10,000 views. That's cool. <laughs> oh, your video get a million views. That's cool. Now it's not cool because that motherfucker's getting 15 million yeah. views. But guess what, dude? When you get yourself out of this, the matrix-like, uh, I guess, trappings of those comparisons on social media and you go back to that original high school scale. Like, I just got back from Sao Paulo, Brazil, mm. and I was keynoting at the Singularity Summit. And there were maybe 2,000 people there. But when you go back from the internet to the meat space and you see 2,000 individuals and how many people that actually is, Mm. would you get excited by 2,000 views? Probably not. Would you get excited by 2,000 comments? Probably not. But when you have the physical encounter with 2,000 people, you, I guess you, you, you remember how powerful it is to even reach one person. Do you know what I'm saying? I totally. And, my, and, and my. so there is freedom in realizing that like you got to do the content because it fulfills you and you got to do the content because you trust it will find those it needs to find. Mm. And sure, work to scale and work to grow it, but also realize that at the end of the day, like, you know, your capacity to impact one person somewhere should be enough. 
Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Everything until the last sentence. So I respond violently against the idea of it's enough to impact one person. (laughs) And the the Mm -hmm. reason is I really, really think that that is, um, okay, so I think everything comes down to worldview. And I think it is very okay if somebody has truly mapped a worldview that says it's enough to impact one person. I, I actually get that and I don't want to talk somebody out of that. And and if that's where you are and that's what you value and you have a neurochemical response, I helped that one person and, and all of my labor was for that and, and I'm okay with that. That isn't my frame of reference. That isn't the value system that I've taken a long time to construct. So I'm writing a book right now and it is utterly fascinating how it's forcing me to really crystallize my thinking. Mm. And when I really try to stop to identify why I act in the world the way that I act and you said something a minute ago, you become what you behold. Mm-hmm. And I think you also become what you desire to value or what you decide to value. The problem is most people, the the desire to value things happens based on proximity, where they grew up, what their parents like, what the culture around them likes, all that, without realizing it's all, it is the matrix. So the matrix is this, you can't see it, you can't taste it, you can't touch it, it's everything that's around you. But what people don't fully understand is all of that was a choice. You just weren't making the choice consciously. And so you can decide to value something new. And mm-hmm. my, my life's work is about, okay, how and why do you decide to value something new? And the how's pretty critically important, but not to, to get too far afield mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. where I started. So my thing is I have chosen over time to value scale. I didn't have to choose that, but I did choose that. And now Mm. I've reinforced it in my mind so many times Mm -hmm. that I have an actual neurochemical response to to scale. scale. And when you say like, oh, it's enough to help one person, I immediately, my mind jumps to that. I imagine, yeah, I imagine helping one fucking person. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, all of this energy and effort has to be, it has to be played or deployed against something, a vision, something you're trying to do and achieve. Now, I don't want that ever to happen by accident. And so part of what I'm deploying my energies against is my vision of scale. It is saying I have chosen to value this. I want to impact a lot of lives that I don't want to have lived to only help one person, largely because I would deploy a totally different strategy. So it's like if my strategy were to one-on-one, like a social worker, really help like individual people and to be very meaningful in their lives, I get that. I think that's fucking beautiful. It just isn't the value system that I have built into my own life. So I have this visceral response when people say that. And fair enough. And, and honestly, if I'm real, Oh God, if you want to just crawl inside my mind and I stop like with the sort of hedging, I think the reality is that isn't a win for most people. And there, that is the psychological immune system kicking in and saying, basically, even if you fail, it's okay. Now, to tease all of that out would take a whole fucking episode unto itself. Do you itself. feel like even if you fail, that's okay? Yes, definitively. Okay. And that's okay, what I was well, that, say. That's very to, important because, okay, so you want to reach as many people as possible, which is a, a beautiful endeavor, a desire to make a dent in the universe, um, a desire to extend your hand towards others and impact others and sleep better at night knowing that you've made a difference in the lives of others and if you fail, let's say, at reaching a billion people, but you reached 300 million instead, <laughs> are you going to be okay? And, and furthermore, you know, a question that I have for both of us is, like, what is it that we are ultimately sharing with 
others that we feel will positively impact their lives. Now, I imagine from you, it's your experience in overcoming obstacles and allowing you to become so successful in life um, so that others can realize that when they run into difficult moments, that they start to question themselves, that they have the capacity to overcome those obstacles and those insecurities and those second-guessing chatter of the overactive default mode network, like, and, and that they can, in fact, thrive. So sharing your own experience becomes a meme that you can pay on forward in the hopes that it infects others with optimism and a sense of possibility. Is that fairly accurate? That, that's the first half of it. The second half mm -hmm. is I want to give them an instruction manual on how to actually do it. Yes. And so my, my whole thing, this, this really did, it, it was a two-step thing. I big brothered for a kid for eight and a half years. His name was Rashawn and I completely failed him. Yeah. And, oh. and I just had like a, a, like this really surprising emotional moment the other day. So I recorded a video called the master plan video. And I, I want to like Babe Ruth, I want to call my fucking shot and say, this is exactly what we're doing. And 15 years from now, when you realize that we have executed against this fucking step by step for over a fucking decade, mm. and that like we're really, I have the chills in my head, that people will realize this was truly a master plan. But to get them to understand it, I, I have to start with Rashawn. And I had this wave of like, I think for the first time in my life, I allowed myself to just say it, I failed him. And in saying it so nakedly, it was just really, really heartbreaking. And so I, I try to help him and I fail because I'm too young and too stupid. I don't understand myself yet. I still have a fixed mindset. I'm totally fucking lost. I'm insecure. I'm a mess. Mm -hmm. And the, I, I hope that I showed him that somebody loved him. That's like my one hope. But I definitely did not give him the tools to change his life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Flash, flash forward 15 years later and I have the tools. I know what I did. I have the self-awareness. I've walked myself through this in, insane transformation that I truly believe any av average human can do. And in trying to like pass it on to my employees, cause I had about a thousand of my employees grew up really fucking hard, man. Like really, I used to think that they grew I grew up what hard, uh -huh. like in the inner cities, watching people get shot to death, um, being involved in gangs, like just mm -hmm. unimaginably hard. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, wait, this reminds me of Rashawn. I'm not going to fail more people. How do I convey this? And so I start getting obsessed with this notion that it, it was learnable for me and therefore it is learnable for other people. I did not have any entrepreneurial skills or instincts when I started business, none whatsoever. And so how do I codify this? How do I hand it off? And in trying to do that, I realized that layer one is inspiration, motivation, spiritual entertainment. And I noticed with some pride and a whole lot of terror that I had a two hour declining impact on people's lives. For two hours, I could make them believe that they could do anything. But if they didn't stay with me, that would, in a declining arc, they would go from, you know, right after hanging out with me, they felt like they could take on the world. And then a half hour later, mm. it was a little more distant, an hour later, and then by two hours, it was nothing. Jamie Wheel, who we both know and you've had on one of your shows, yes. um, once described what you just said. <laughs> He's so witty with language. He called it saccharine catharsis. Mm. So catharsis obviously is a deeply meaningful psychological experience of deep learning and revelation and healing. You know, catharsis is when you're cracked yourself, you crack yourself open 
Um, it's a kind of bliss fuck crucifixion to death and resurrection. But he says that that can also be induced, right, or mediated by an experience, you know, whether it's a staged experience or a natural experience, but that sometimes that catharsis can be not inauthentic, but it was like, it was like, I'm not opposed to staging experiences of transformation. I'm sure. not. But I think that we have to be careful. And again, staging an experience can just be you lecturing at somebody for two hours in a powerful environment in which they get caught up in what you're saying. I mean, I'm not opposed to that. That's what I do in Shots of Awe. You know what I mean? Like we're doing the same thing in that sense. But that we have to be careful that the audience doesn't get so caught up in what is ultimately a staged experience, whether it's a video that I've prepared for them or a lecture that you prepared, that they have a catharsis that's not a real catharsis because it doesn't have the integration, and it doesn't have the follow-through, and it doesn't have the practices that then they need to deploy in their lives to make that a lasting change. And so he used to call it, he says that a lot of times motivational speakers mm. who lead this three-day workshop, you know, change your life, that the audience can get caught up in the frenzy, in the altered state of consciousness of that workshop, and have a saccharin catharsis. Mm. Saccharin, of course, is the artificial sweetener that we put in coffee that's actually terrible for you. So that it's not... It's not a real catharsis, you know, it's like, it's like cheating, which is, I think, similar to what happens when people think that if they take a psychedelic, like ayahuasca or magic mushrooms for one night, that they're going to have, they're going to pierce the veil and everything will be different. And while no doubt you can have glimpses of that which is beyond the known um, when you take psychedelics in the right environments, if you don't integrate if you don't go back to your day-to-day -day default world and implement changes and codify learnings in a way that makes you whole, right, and, and, can, and, can, and can bring some of those insights into practical daily endeavors, then, it, then, it's, a, then it's an artificially induced catharsis with no, with no lasting impact. So and so now, it's it's exactly what you were saying. It's like they have it for two hours and then it wears and then it wears out. You so know, give me the step by step. How the fuck do people do that? And this is the so the punchline to what I was saying before yeah. is I want to get to the point where I can. And, and this is what the book really is. It is a step by fucking step. Do this. Repeat this. Stand here. Say that like as as much as that's humanly possible with the brain. Mm -hmm. So walk me through integration. In fact, I don't know that there's a human being I've ever encountered that is able to integrate ideas more powerfully than you. What is your process for integrating the catharsis so that it actually becomes a part of you and you have that ability? And dude, if it's fucking just repeating it a thousand times, awesome. I, I, I don't care what the answer yeah, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. but how the fuck mm -hmm. do you get all of these ideas to mesh in your mind? Mm -hmm. To become a part of you, right? Yes. Well, that's a really great question, and uh, one of the things that I sort of fight against is is similar to muscles. It doesn't matter if you train for three months and you build your body real strong, because if you stop for three months, they will atrophy. Granted, there's an element of muscle memory, and you can sort of recover that fairly fast, but still, what that tells us is that um, there's got to be some kind of daily or weekly practice um, what that you, you incorporate into do? your life. Well, okay, so for example, for me, one of the most healing uh, insights that, 
that I keep coming back to is just is, is just the power of overcoming the trappings of time, right? Being caught up in the future, worried about what's next, um, and or regretful or, or clinging to what once was and is no longer, which is the platitude cliche bumper sticker like be here now that Baba Ramda says. That's the solution to so many of our anguishes and agonies is to just be present. Now I've had that insight 1,000 fucking times. I've talked about mental health as being freedom from self, freedom from chatter, the flow that you find in no mind, these transitory enchanted moments in which we gasp for air, compelled into, in the words of F. Scott Fitzgerald, aesthetic contemplation we barely understand nor desire face-to-face with something can measure to our capacity for wonder. I mean, that is... That is the great aha, right? That is the divine realm. These are the divinations, the mythopoetic spaces that we enter where we feel connected with something larger than ourselves and we are in the eternal right now. I've had that a thousand fucking times. Dude, <laughs> the, the, the amnesia of two days later when I go back into the cycles of the day-to-day has shown me that the only answer is simply to incorporate practices that allow me to revisit the present. And for some people, that can be meditation. For some people, it's yoga. For some people, it's simply building an environment around them that broadcasts to them the qualities that they wish to aspire to on a daily basis because we need to be reminded. Well, real shit might be the set you've built for yourself. Like every day that you wake up. What do you do? What is... I chase... I chase... Okay, so for for me, it's aesthetic experiences... Combined with novelty. Movies? Like, what are we talking about? Travel is huge for me. Interesting. And, is that and, why you go to Amsterdam so much? Amsterdam. I just got back from Brazil. Yeah. So you've heard of Michael Pollan's new book, How to Change Your Mind? I've heard of it. I've recently become super interested in him, but I am not. Okay. I'm a total novice. Highly recommend you check out his new book, How to Change Your Mind. It's about psychedelics and healing. But in the preface of the book... There's a very interesting passage that I will share with you. Um, He says that, and it applies to answering this question of how I do it. Um, He says basically that one of the things that we have to get used to about our default setting is that the brain is essentially uh, future tense, you know, and and the angle towards the future, angle towards the future with a low level hum of anxiety as our default state. And the reason for that is 100,000 years ago in the savannas of Africa, if we were not thinking ahead about what was around that next bush, we were going to get eaten by predators. And so we are the descendants of those that were the most neurotic and future-oriented. Those that were blissfully in the Garden of Eden, Eden got eaten. Okay? (laughs) And he goes further. He says the brain is like an artificial intelligence program in that it takes in data from the present, right? And it compares that data with uh, data from the past and then immediately makes inferences about the future, right? So it's a prediction machine. And the line he uses is, the good news is I'm seldom surprised, the bad news is I'm seldom surprised, right? So you're mitigating against future threat and if you do that effectively, you survive. Yay, no surprises here. But the problem is that there's also no delightful surprises. 
There's also no finding yourself off the reservation in the present, senses heightened, you know, deeply engaged, you know, when, when the stakes are high because you get so good at cushioning your life by saving money in the bank and preparing adequately for the future and putting yourself in a safe environment that then you grow stale and then you grow bored. That's why some people are so poor, all they have is money, you know? And wow, so I love that. That, my mom used to tell me that quote when I was little all the time because I wanted so badly to be really rich. My grandfather was very wealthy and I was like, I want to be rich like my grandfather. And she was like, yeah, some people are so poor, all they have is money. <laughs> um, but anyway, so, so this is the default setting, right? Low-level hum of anxiety, future-oriented uh, behavior and future-oriented attitude. And so leapfrogging from the present, right? Leapfrogging into the future and concluding what this already is and never engaging with the now. So then how do we fix that? So Michael Pollan writes, one of the things that commends travel, art, and novelty, right? And certain kinds of drugs, whether it's cannabis or other psychedelics, is that these experiences, get this, they knock they knock offline. They block all signals forwards and backwards. So the future modeling, right? The expectation building and future modeling that is automatic mm. gets knocked offline. And the comparison between the now and the past gets knocked offline. So certain kinds of visceral art, travel, certain drugs, encounters with radical novelty, anything that radically decenters you, right? Block all signals, blocks all signals forwards and backwards hurling you into the flow, his words, the flow of a present that is literally wonderful, wonder-full. Wonder being the byproduct of that unencumbered sense of first sight mm. to which the adult brain has closed itself, right? And so for me, that that is right there. I'm like, I need then to organize my life, to curate my life around regular encounters with experiences that violate my expectations. I need to thwart the default future modeling of my brain, the jadedness and the been there's and seen that's of the adult mind, the part of me that thinks I know what this is, I understand this. I've seen this before. I've been to that neighborhood. Oh, I, don't, I, I know what that's going to be. Oh, I know what this party is. Oh, I know what that crowd is. All those things that allow us to dismiss engaging with the world by assuming that we know what we're engaging with and therefore assuming that we don't really need to pay that much attention. Mm. <laughs> in fact, it's also Michael Pollan who in an earlier book called The Botany of Desire said, what is banality and boredom? except techniques that the educated mind employs against experience so that it get, so that it can get through the day without being continually exhaustingly astonished so that that sort of adult arrogance and that assumption of, that we think that we know anything you know is often just a, a way of a screen of protections against engaging with a world that's actually full of mystery mm -hmm. um, and because I'm guilty of doing this I then have to I have to seek out experiences that violate my expectations because then what happens is I'm in virginal terrain. I'm off the reservation and I have to finally, um, I guess, re-engage with what is happening now and find out who I am in that moment. And, and if I have regular access to those kinds of experiences, then I get, I get new data, new data for my videos, new material with which to integrate, um, but I guess for me, the process of integration is to put into 
practice practices that hurl me into the present. Right. That's um, super interesting. So, that the knowledge from that is not enough. The knowledge from each, each of those instances of finding myself in the present, the healing that happens in each of those instances is not enough. It's like I got to go back to the wishing well. Whenever somebody asks me my tips for scaling a business, I always tell them focus on efficiency because if you don't, you're going to waste a lot of time and money spinning your wheels instead of making smart choices that will lead you to actually being able to grow. That's why I recommend you check out Shopify, which has everything you need to efficiently grow your business and take it to the next level. Every time I talk about Shopify, I'm so jealous that you guys have this all-in-one ready solution at your fingertips. It is so helpful. Shopify is a global commerce platform that makes it easy to sell online and in person at any and every stage of your business. Literally, wherever, whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered, just like the millions of businesses that rely on them every day. And Shopify's award-winning customer support is there to help you every step of the way. Plus, you get access to Shopify Magic, the AI-powered tool that will save you so much time and give you a huge leg up in growing your business. And with Shopify's super-efficient checkout process, which performs 36% better than competitors, you are primed for more sales just by using Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Go to Shopify dot com slash impact right now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash impact this podcast is brought to you by squarespace if you've got a lot of great ideas inside of you that could literally change the world but you're keeping them locked away out of doubt or fear of failure please listen up within you is a unique blend of ideas dreams and passions that no one else possesses and it's time to take action on them and put them out into the world with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it simple and straightforward to create a website, engage with your audience, and sell your ideas with their all-in-one website platform. Easily customize Squarespace templates so your website stands out and makes an impact. And get insights into your website and email performance with built-in analytics so you can be constantly improving your site, sales, and strategies to reach your goals. And I hope those goals are aggressive. I'm telling you guys, you can take action today, not next week or next month or next quarter, today, and get your ideas out there with Squarespace. That's how you get into the physics of progress and get better. So head over right now to squarespace.com slash impact for a free 14-day trial and 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com slash impact. Please do not die with these ideas inside of you. Get out there, put them to the test. Go to squarespace.com slash impact. Is it going back to the well or so this originally started with, cause that, that whole notion of um, getting yourself out of context, I think is really, really interesting. Yeah. Violating your expectations, yeah. Yeah. super powerful. Yeah. I definitely had not thought of that. Yeah. Um, but the, the started with integration, like how yeah. do we integrate the ideas that we have? So when I think about what I do, it comes back to, and I'm not sure this is exactly right. So this is me at the edge of what I already understand, trying to grow up and, and find something new. But I think of this as obsession. So I always tell people, if you want to be successful in business, let me tell you one of the like key factors nobody talks about. It is so fucking real. I don't even know how to like get it across. 
If you are not obsessed, you're not going to win. Why? Because you need your mind to constantly like worry over that problem to, to like you run, like if you've ever chipped your tooth, running your tongue over that chip over and over and over and over and over and over. Like your mind has to do that with these big problems. Otherwise you're never going to be able to solve them. Like you, or I'm, I really believe cognitively I'm quite slow. And I think because people see me at the end of a very long journey, they think, what do you mean? Like you're able to put ideas together very fast. No, I'm not. Not unless I've already thought about them over and over and over. But I'm very good at making something Mm -hmm. a problem. And I use that word in quotes, but making something a problem worthy of my attention so that I'm planting this notion in my subconscious. I'll actually sometimes think about here's an idea that I want to process overnight or right before I meditate. Here's an idea that I want an answer to or something I need a solution or ideas that I'd like to connect somehow because I need my subconscious mind more than anything Mm -hmm. to, to just be like working over this problem, over this problem, over this Mm -hmm. problem. And if somebody like I listen to everything at two X, if, if it's normal human speech and partly because if there are gaps where somebody is like pausing to think too long, my mind will immediately go back to that problem. And I really believe that for me, that process of integration has been choosing to value that my mind is going to work on this problem, that feeding into obsession and rewarding myself for obsessing over something, picking a very small number of things to really obsess about so that I'm looping over them to spend time meditating, not just meditating to empty my thoughts, but what I call thinkitating, where I'm taking that alpha wave brain state that I get into from trying to empty my thoughts and then deploying that against Mm. some problem that I'm trying to do. Mm. Or I find in terms of what you're talking about of creating these moments where you're, you're putting yourself in a certain cognitive place Hot showers do that for me. So even though I become obsessed with cold showers, I always end hot because my mind goes into what feels exactly like a meditative state because I've sort of pre-told myself to to worry my mind. And uh, I'm using that word worry in a way that I think people will misinterpret. I'm I'm setting my mind to walk along an idea. Mm -hmm. And because I... I do that as a force of habit and not as something that's just natural. I think I do already have an inclination towards that. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then I've, I've grabbed a hold of that process and said, I yeah. need to, to make this a part of my life. Yeah, I sure. don't just want it to be something that I skim across. I really want to like take this thing and now really fucking understand it. And so in that process, so I've set my mind to it. And in that process, the goal that I've given myself is to understand it to the point where A, I could explain it to a Mm five-year-old and B, I can do it in steps. Mm -hmm. And by combining those things, Mm -hmm. then I find with one addition that you have to create space for your mind. I find I'm able to to get to something. Well, I guess, I guess you could say that, um, you know, I think that the diseases or the pathologies of of mental distress, of mental health these days, are diseases of personal personal crisis, diseases of getting too caught up in our own narrative um, about who we are and what we're doing here, and are we successful enough, and are we not successful enough, and what's going to happen with this relationship? Blah, 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 blah. Assuming, of course, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, assuming that you know you you're fed. And, and you have enough of an income to have a home and you've met these like basic needs, then then the needs that have to do with like personal meaning and personal impact and what is the meaning of life in the face of being a mortal being and all these things um, become really problematic. 
one of the things that they've, I don't know if we talked about this last year when I was here, we talked a lot about anxiety, but that, that the diseases of personal crises that, that stem from too much anxiety and, and depression are diseases of excessive self-consciousness, mm-hmm. excessive rumination. So becoming, becoming, I sound like a cheesy Buddhist, but becoming overly identified with the voice in your head and, 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 or the ego, as they say. Now, granted, and Michael Pollan says this too, the ego is necessary. You know, the ego gets the book written. The ego takes care of the machinery, right? It makes sure that you get enough rest, that you feed yourself well, that you put yourself in a comfortable shelter, that you surround yourself with nice people. The ego is the executive conductor of the orchestra. It's necessary, right? But when the ego becomes overly caught up with itself, you know, past the point, past the threshold of taking care of the machinery so that then you can function well in egoless states. Um, an ego that becomes overly identified with itself goes from being the executive of the orchestra to a tyrant that is hypervigilant and always on guard, right? And then this creates the excessive mental chatter that is associated with the excessive rumination of the diseases of anxiety of depression. It's actually a brain that has become too ordered, and, and Robin Carthart Harris, who I believe is in the Imperial College of London and is doing all this research on psychedelics and, and mental health, came up with a theory called the entropic brain theory. And basically the theory, and this is based on fMRI scans that they did with all these people, is that essentially people who suffer from depression and anxiety, the diseases of personal crises, have brains that have become too ordered. Obsessive thinking. Order? Okay, um, North Korea instead of the United States. So it's like... The, the, the ego is so obsessed with protecting itself and or, and or scaling and or climbing and or succeeding that, that, that you become, the, the self-obsession becomes like a storm in your head. Mm. You're never good enough or you're anxious, you're going to fail, you're comparing yourself to others or all these things, right? And, and then eventually those, those, those thoughts and those patterns of thinking they become so fixed because their their, their grooves are so overly carved on, right? That again, it's 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 too much order in the brain, too much identification with the self, and that what is actually needed then for healing is regular encounters with experiences that smack you over the face, and sh- as they put it, shake the snow globe. What happens when you shake the snow globe? All those ski roots that you've been you know those obsessive thoughts those self-identifying thoughts that again some of them are necessary the ego gets the book written the ego gets you to bed at night the ego has you work out and get your things done but too much of that then you know then you over identify with the self which is ultimately ultimately a transitory thing anyway that is going to cause you pretty much suffering in the end so shaking the snow globe as they say um, resets the system, reboots the system, and also offers you encounters with modalities of awareness in which all those obsessive, intrusive thoughts aren't there. And whether it's flow or whether there's just the, the, the stillness or the meditative trance of finding freedom from your own voice can be very healing. Um, and I guess for me, the integration is simply realizing that I have to, on a regular basis, just like nutrition, you, gotta, you can't just eat healthy today 
and then the insights of that healthy meal are going to carry over. You got to eat healthy all the time or the majority of the time. So I need to expose myself or put myself in situations that humble the voices in my head, that quiet the inner chatter enough, that allow me to merge with my environment, to become enmeshed and or entangled with a, a majestic encounter with nature or a beautiful song or 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 a lovemaking session with a lover to uh, to to, to I'm, gonna, I'm gonna stop you there yes please because you you okay. say things sometimes that are so rad but you're so poetic that you blow past them and i promised myself in this i was like the fucking next time i'm with this guy and he says something like that i'm gonna stop him so you become enmeshed with your environment. Yeah. That's really interesting. Are you yeah. talking about the breakdown of the ego in that? Like when you say enmeshed, what yeah, do you mean? I'm talking about losing track of your own boundaries um, and forgetting yourself for a while. Now, those of us that are highly disciplined, highly driven, highly ambitious, go on, highly caught up, in our own thoughts and and highly caught up in thinking about what we think about things um, can create a, a, a kind of rigid wall between us and the world because we've thought about everything so much, we know what everything is, and so we can rely more on our own thoughts than on our experience or encounter with something outside of ourselves because it's just like, I know what that is. I just got to guard the vessel and I don't have to really engage with that. Losing track of your own boundaries temporarily can be like a kind of vacation from yourself in which the normal pre-mapping of circumstance and pre-mapping of experience and pre-expecting what's going to happen that your brain is doing automatically is knocked off line. And so what happens is it's like you find yourself porous and unguarded. And it's, it's that unexpected feeling of like being struck by something so magnificent that it takes your breath away. And, and, and I think just these are transient experiences of eternity because they take place in a liminal space outside of time. But when you have them and then you, <laughs> you pop out on the other side of those experiences and, 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 find, and you, you know, find yourself again a little bit, that's that's when you get new material because that experience, like where'd you go when that was happening? You know, I just got back from Kauai and I, uh, it was one of the most, be- it's one of the most beautiful islands in Hawaii. And we went to, to this famous Nepali coast, which is this rugged Jurassic park, like mm. coast of the island that you can only see by boat. And it's like, I mean, it's like, this might sound really vulgar, but it's like, it's like nature, like, like, ejaculating on your face <laughs> you know it's like it's like extaculations of amazement there's actually there's a guy who was the the first westerner who ever took psychedelic mushrooms with with indigenous cultures in in mexico and he wrote for life magazine when he when he about his experience back in the 60s and his his description is apt he said that he spent the evening uttering ejaculations of amazement <laughs> But but the point is, yeah, like we, we just we need we need to experience humbling incomprehension. You said that on a regular humbling, basis. Humbling. Why that word? 
Well, because there's a kind of intellectual arrogance that comes with being a person that spends their whole life trying to make sense of things, understand things, and optimize things to make them better, which is something that I definitely tend to do, and I infer that you do it too. Yeah. And 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 that's that's fine, right? Like you're to be brilliant and ambitious and intelligent, and to put so much labor into making sense of things and distilling things and explaining things to others. Like what a beautiful endeavor. As long as every once in a while, you know, we we experience a kind of gobsmacking, you know, we witness something so beautiful, so magnificent, so unexpected mm. that oh my god, it's an, it's just it's new material. It's a, it allows for like a new aha. You're and putting... I think and I think it's just like I just think we we just need that. I know that I need that on a regular basis. So <laughs> my integration practice is simply realizing that. I have to go back to the wishing well. Like I just that 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 this is like something that needs to be part of my diet on a regular basis because otherwise my tendency is to simply collapse back into patterns that serve me for a little while and eventually become problematic. You know what I mean? You're, you're putting poetry to something that haunts me. I think more than just about anything else in my life. So I read this. Tell me what if, haunts if, you, bro. It, it, it this really does. And, tell me, and tell people me. that are used to listening to me have heard me talk about this before, but. Um, if you study the people who've won Nobel prizes, they almost always get a Nobel prize in their sixties for work they did in their twenties. And a quote bubbled up out of that, which is genius is a young man's game. Mm -hmm. And as somebody who feels like a late bloomer, that's definitely a part of my identity. Like it really took me a long time to develop self-awareness. I didn't get into business until I was in my late twenties. Like it, it took me a very long time to wrap my head around a lot of things. And I've always felt like I'm just a, a step slower than a lot of people. And so I'm okay with that. Like that doesn't actually damage my sense of self as long as I can keep that window open forever. My, my opportunity for genius, if you will. So when I heard that quote, I was like, fuck you, no way. Like, who are the outliers in that? And thankfully, that piece where that quote came up was talking about a guy mm -hmm. who was one of the few people to ever win multiple Nobel Prizes. And he's continued to produce relevant work into his later years. And he said, my whole thing is every 10 years, I have to reinvent myself. Mm -hmm. And I, I really, really, really want to believe, even though I know there's a part of just like the level of brain plasticity does diminish over yeah. over time. Yeah. I think that's unfortunately a reality. It does not go away and it never drops to zero, but it definitely, you're not as plastic as you get older. But I think a big part of the reason that so much profound work is done in one's 20s is because it's that moment where the, the notions that you've been fucking around with are now beginning to congeal in useful wisdom and you have the skill set with which to deploy them. So you've learned all this shit. It's coming together in your head. Your brain is finally developed at the age of 25. It comes together in this highly usable way, but it's not become like calcified dogma yet. So you're still open. Everything is new. You're having these ecstatic ejaculations, ejaculations as you're, you know, mumbling awe into the universe. And it's like you, you're at this magic moment where you're finally competent, but yet you're still open. Uh -huh. And so when I hear you talk about all that stuff, it feels like you're saying you have to, you have to, using your word, shake the snow globe as a way to remain open because you have all this competence. Your brain is like grabbing onto it. It's defining you more and more. You're becoming more ordered. I'd never heard it said like that, but that makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. in, in that way where it's like, okay, the risk becomes I calcify and I'm no longer open to new experience. I no longer go back to the wishing well. I don't have new ideas. All my genius was when I was young. But 
the calcification actually, like if you think of bones as being your fucking skeleton, you can move around and do shit. So you need you need enough exactly. calcification for your bones. As like I said, the ego is necessary. The ego gets the book written. The patterns of behavior that make you effective in the world, no doubt, are necessary. But that's that that the same governing mechanics that underlie the ordering processes of the ego, which is the default mode network, can become metastasized when people suffer from the pathologies of anxiety and depression. So the default mode network, the ego that keeps order over the machinery, the patterns that serve you can also be, um, can also lead to patterns that trap you. Yup. So, right? So the patterns that serve you can become the patterns that trap you if they metastasize, just like healthy tissue can become cancerous when it metastasizes. And so the shaking of the snow globe is a necessary reboot. You know, the data in your computer is important if it's a reflection of all the documents and everything you've put into the, you know, that you've learned and that you've written down, that you've organized and you've assembled together. It's very important. But what about like the whole fragmentation that happens with all that data unless you like defragment the hard drive every once in a while? And I imagine that that's the, what Robert Carthart Harris from Imperial College of London is referring to when he says that in this case, they're talking about psychedelic experiences taken in controlled environments that introduce actually disorder into the brain temporarily. And by flooding the brain with disorder, it's like instead of taking the same freeway to work, your neurons, the way they communicate with each other, um, you're taking all these side route, side roads all of a sudden. And so people have this temporary, you know, five-hour experience of egoless communion with the divine. But it turns out that the lasting afterglow is com what comes from shaking the snow globe and then popping out on the other side, feeling like, wow, like I just went through something that called into question many things in my life, many certainties in my life, and that being hung upside down for a while like that was amazing because I got to behold the miracles that we live next to often and ignore. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's like that Yeats quote says, the world is full of magic things, patiently waiting for our senses to grow sharper. Um, and it's, it's the same thing that causes hedonic adaptation. You know, that flower is stunning and it'll stop you in your tracks once, twice, three times, but the fourth or fifth time, you don't even see the flower anymore because you're busy doing something else and that's fine. But maybe two weeks later, you need to get knocked over the head by something and gobsmacked so that you remember the flower. And so it's, it's I guess, ping-ponging back and forth between like highly ordered and disciplined states and then absolute and ecstatic surrender. Um, there was a wonderful Venn diagram that my friend made from the Imaginary Foundation. And, and basically here it was um, discipline, was one of the circles, and the other circle was surrender. And then there was a circle in the middle that overlapped them both and it was called flow. You know, and I think about... That's interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. You, 30 seconds ago, you could not have convinced me that I would be like, yeah, surrender. <laughs> but saying it, yeah, drawing a line to flow, that makes sense. Yeah. And also another term for it is, is calling it disciplined surrender. Mm. Csikszentmihalyi um, said, "Accepting limitations is liberation," and Explain that's that. and that's the guy that wrote the book on flow. Yeah, yeah. Csikszentmihalyi coined the term. Well, this is a this is a fantastic quote. That's actually something that I've been thinking about a lot lately because I have labored uh, intentionally to give myself as much freedom as possible in my life. You know, I worked in television as a presenter. I hosted TV shows for current TV, five seasons of Brain Games, Origins. I did that. Um, didn't do, been doing shots of awe, you know, doing a lot of speaking. And I probably like kind of put more effort into generating 
speaking opportunities for me because it's like, okay, like it's, it's one-off gigs that pay really well that give me the maximum amount of freedom. It's mm-hmm. like, aside from like going wherever I'm booked, I'm like, okay, great. I have a booking in Europe. Let's stay in Europe for three weeks and explore. I have a booking in South Africa. Let's stay in South Africa for three, you know, radical freedom. But too much freedom without constraint is actually problematic because it can give you a kind of cognitive vertigo and decision fatigue. You know, I open up Netflix sometimes. <laughs> I browse it for 10 minutes. I see fucking 11 things that I want to watch. And then I hover back and forth between deciding which one is more of a priority to watch tonight. Then I browse a little bit more, see like five other things I want to watch. And then I'm stressed from the 15 minutes I've spent browsing Netflix. And then I close it and I end up <laughs> opening iTunes and watching a movie I bought two weeks ago that I've seen three times because it's familiar and comforting. So too much freedom, just like too much discipline um, is equally problematic. And so then I stumbled upon this chick send me high line that said accepting limitations is liberation. It's like, okay, well, choose a constraint, like choose a hobby, choose a career, choose a fucking city that you're going to move to for three months. Like just fucking choose it, you know, you just know it's not forever, but like commit mm. to it, impose a constraint so that inside that constraint, you can be free. Dude, I, I agree with that violently. Yeah. So one of my big frustrations with people that um, they want, uh, they don't have passion in their life. They want to start a business, but they don't know what business, like whatever. Just fucking pick. Like, I, and it's one of those that really does just come down to just pick. Nothing yeah. is ever going to feel like a magic answer. Nothing, nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And people have, and, and we reinforce it in pop culture, the sense that hiding within me is some great passion. Yeah. And I need to do an archaeological dig. I need yeah. to uncover that. And then yeah. everything is going to be great in my life. And the yeah. fucking reality is that nothing is ever going to feel right. It's never going to feel like the right movie or whatever. I know that yeah. feeling so fucking well. Yeah. And you simply decide. And mm-hmm. in allowing yourself to decide mm-hmm. with, with no sense of like, this is going to somehow dictate the rest of my life. It's a fucking decision. And the most important thing is to not hesitate. And so my wife and I have a, a, a sort of joke, inside joke line where if you do something and you hesitate, we say your hesitation has almost killed us once again. Um, and just, just to brilliant sort of enjoyably remind each other that there's no like where we go to eat doesn't fucking matter. It's being afraid to make a decision mm-hmm. that is wildly problematic yeah. and that will echo through your life in some terrifying ways. Mm-hmm. But just saying we're going to eat here, even if you get there and it ends up being a substandard experience. So fucking what? You didn't mm-hmm. hesitate to make a decision. This is, this is at the moment one of my Achilles heels because I became successful and I had all that freedom. And so making choices when there is no constraint um, sometimes will deplete my my cognition mm. until I'm fatigued that by the time I do make a choice, um, I am too tired to enjoy it. So this is like, it's like FOMO, but taken to the next level. <laughs> so FOMO, everybody knows FOMO, the fear of missing out. So recently the term that comes to mind for me is the fear of future regret. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's a, big one and it can be something as tedious as like okay i'm in the mood to shoot some new shots of all material i never outline or script my videos Mm. my videos are always a response to something meaningful that transpired so what i do is i try to design for a stage i try to design for an experience of surrender Mm. of egoless 
surrender so that on the other side of that, I'll have new material. Like, you know, I, I plan for delightful surprises and then trust that the material that will come through in the end will be great for shots of awe. So then I might be like, okay, well, so where do I want to go for a couple of weeks to shoot? Is it, is it Amsterdam? Is it, is it Copenhagen? Is it South Africa? Is it Switzerland? I mean, these sound like high-class problems, but I'm just talking about an example because the degree to which I'll over-deliberate about saying, well, if I choose this, what if it ends up not being amazing and then I'll wish I would have chosen that instead is such a intoxicating and... and, and, and and polluting example of excessive rumination mm. getting in the way of realizing that actually no matter what you choose, if you evoke an experience of radical presence in any of those choices, you'll experience the timeless wherever the fuck you are. Mm. And that it's only in the timeless that the healing will occur. And so I've been trying to practice a little more of like, snap decisions without thinking about Love it that. too much you know and then just trusting um yeah and then and then and then making sure that once i'm i'm in that place that i that i commit to to the surrender here's what know? i find even more interesting about that so i think that um because we're so obsessed with reproducibility so it's uh, like when you do when, you when, I, when i do have an encounter in a place that was transformative, that was healing, that I got gobsmacked by inspiration, that all this material came from. I wanna bookmark that place, I wanna bookmark that moment, I wanna bookmark that circumstance, and then the next time I'm like, wait, what do you wanna do next month? I'm like, I wanna go back to that place where that thing happened. Oh, I don't know that that's true. I it think you wanna, you wanna go back to that place where you felt that creative and you had that sort of flow experience. That's right, but I, I will always in my brain will always go to the last place in which that happened. And it creates a kind of tunnel vision that makes me think that it has to be there. This and is where it, it's fascinating to me how different people are because yeah. that that wouldn't be a trigger for me. But one the thing that I often, um, whenever I have something that I don't feel that I've earned, that I didn't work my way to that ability, okay. then I have a, a real fear that it won't show up for me when I need it. And so that's another reason that I don't value things that were given to you. Like I have absolutely no sense of pride or anything over how tall I am, right? So that's just like, I didn't do anything to earn it, so why the fuck would I give a shit? So, but things that I've worked my ass off for, then I can feel like I know it's gonna be there for me when I need it because I have worked, it's a process, like it was something that I could sort of grab a hold and bring to me. But really fast, I wanna go back to what you were saying about like making snap decisions, which I think is really important, but part of what makes snap decisions so powerful to me is I think there are, there are actual real consequences to making a poor decision. And that's what makes being able to make a snap decision so powerful because you really may make a snap decision and it really may be a suboptimal outcome. Now you've got a way to deal with that, which is to find a way to be present when you're there so that it actually is still the gobsmack and you remind yourself that you can have that moment fucking in a, a, a um, uh, God, what are those chambers called? The sensory, sensory deprivation, deprivation chamber, tanks, right? Yeah. You don't actually need any stimulus from the outside. That's you true. can take yourself there in a mental place. So I think that's a really smart way to deal mm -hmm. with it. Mm -hmm. But the very thing, this goes back to my notion of value hierarchies. Mm -hmm. I value decisiveness in and of itself. Why? Because I choose to do and believe that which moves me towards my goals. And when I think about the ultimate thing that mm. releases me from anxiety, from um, things that would otherwise make me feel badly about myself, it is that 
driving value of, hey, does thinking you're an asshole, does that move you towards your goals? Which by the way, my like top level goal, nothing is higher than this thing is, I wanna feel good about myself when I'm by myself. I wanna recognize that life is a very weird cocktail of neurochemistry. So at the end of the day, that's the only game you're playing, but fulfillment, which I'll say is shorthand for feeling good about yourself when you're by yourself, mm -hmm. is this weird fucking thing that survives even like absolute, like a painful down experience. And you can be in the middle of that down experience and still have a sense of like, no, 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 I'm proud of who I am. I'm proud of how I'm dealing with this situation. Mm. And so because that's like my highest aim is to have that the only sort of neurochemical state that I have found that is essentially bulletproof. I can be up, I can be down, and it gives me this even keel sense of self and worth and respect and all of that stuff. Mm. And being decisive is one of those things that is intrinsically valuable. And it does so often move me towards my goals that in and of itself, even in a momentary moment where it may give me a suboptimal outcome, I know it is far better to invest in being decisive because indecision always leads me to a suboptimal outcome. Even in the rare occasion where I did fucking debated it for so long that I finally ended up on an answer that's correct, and, and this is where I get into my cancer analogy of, mm. of building yourself. The thing that you think of, is, of as you is so fucking complicated and it's made of all these different things, values, a sense of identity, beliefs, rules in your life, habits, routines, like they all come together in this so intricately interconnected way. That's why I use cancer. It's like, eh, you can't tell where, where the cancer ends and the, the normal tissue begins. It's just so intermixed. And teasing out what any one of these things is would be next to impossible. And I say that because part of the reason that I so value decisiveness is because I've realized the utility of momentum. And momentum isn't just speed. It's, it's getting you and others pointed in the same direction and moving at speed. And because I know that momentum is so valuable in terms of striving towards your goal, basically whatever your goal is, quite frankly, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that you have to end up valuing decisiveness. So it's like, it's so interesting that you and I are looking at essentially the same thing, but we're looking at it in like these radically different ways. Mm -hmm. And and going back to what you were saying earlier, like I so see in myself the, the I have created the separation between me and the world in a way that is so hyper-aggressive. Mm. And yet what I long for are those moments of shaking the snow globe. Like I'm constantly trying to do both. Mm -hmm. And we touched on this briefly the last time we talked where it's like holding two competing ideas in your head is so critical and being good at that. Like I know when to say, no, 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 I need to be that ultra regimented, super strict, very predictable to myself and to others. And then I know other times where I've got to fucking shake this up. I've got to radically. And now I, I'm trying to quote you here, radically decontextualize myself. Right. And I think you so nailed it with the notion of context Hmm. Like, have you ever seen someone that you've seen multiple times and a part of your brain is like, you know them, but you're like, who the fuck is this? Mm -hmm. Only because you're seeing them out of context. And it's moments like that where I realize, holy hell, context yeah. really matters. Have you had Rick Doblin on your show? I've never even heard those sounds put together. Okay, beautiful. He's the creator of Maps the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. 
and not to bring up psychedelics again, but they are in vogue these days. And the work of MAPS in particular is important. They're working primarily with MDMA. Mm. MDMA, people know it as ecstasy. The drug I most want to try. Used uh, in, you know, part of like rave culture in the 80s and 90s and subsequently banned. What most people don't know is before it was banned and used by club kids, it was actually primarily being used by psychotherapists for mm. marriage counseling. Interesting. Because, yes. It's a subset of psychedelics called empathogenics that MDMA falls into in the sense that they are empathogenic drugs. They mm. open up the heart and increase empathy. So Rick Doblin and MAPS have no doubt from the research, realized that these, these, this is a substance that should be brought back into psychotherapy mm -hmm. to work not just with marriage counseling, but with post-traumatic stress disorder. And post-traumatic stress disorder, for those that don't know, is like, you, let's say you serve in the army and you see some horrific violence in service and then you come back and you can't integrate what you've seen into your day-to-day -day life and, and, and your, your nervous system is permanently altered by that traumatic experience and so you bring that agitation, that anxiety, that panic, that distress to the doorstep of every moment. Your past experience, your past trauma now colors everything you encounter now. Your past is over-determining the present, right? And it turns out that one or two sessions with MDMA and a, psycho and a psychiatrist in the room with an average PTSD person, mm -hmm. people actually with treatment-resistant PTSD, one or two sessions, and they no longer meet the criteria of PTSD. That's so fucking crazy. Cured. Okay. So, 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 so here's what's interesting about that. How does that work? Like, how does that work? Well, the, the, the best description is in the same way that trauma can semi-permanently alter your nervous system, an experience that is of such darkness and gravity can make it so that you, you know, the body keeps the score, as they say. So you bring that past trauma to the doorstep of every moment and it colors how you see the world. The opposite is also true. An experience of such sublime, heart-opening radiance mm. can act as a kind of inverse PTSD. So now you've seen what is through the looking glass. Now you've found the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Now you've seen the promised land. Mm. And from that, optimal arousal zone that space that mdma is able to evoke for people then you can do cognitive repatterning you can go back and examine your trauma you can remember things and put them into different contexts you can contextualize them differently yes. through that lens and the spontaneous self-healing that takes place in the body at the level mm -hmm. of the nervous system is undeniable so i i, I experienced this with the nurse twice You've done MDMA? Yes. Get the fuck out. Yeah, and I did it in a therapeutic Walk context. Walk me through. Therapeutic context. The most amazing experience of it was the radical self-acceptance that it allows you to sit with and marinate in. Now, a lot of people that are ambitious, um, and I would probably group myself into this if I was psychoanalyzing myself, um, suffer from a narcissistic wound. So those that need to achieve, um, usually that stems from some early experience when they felt they were not enough. Mm. I believe the line is, if I am not lovable for who I am, then I will become lovable for what I can do and what I can achieve. And granted, I don't think it's unhealthy to have a desire to make something of yourself. The desire to achieve is a healthy 
drive. Um, but the degree to which that desire comes from thinking that you are unworthy if you don't achieve that desire, that's problematic. And MDMA, because of these empathogenic qualities and allowing you to encounter and be in dialogue with yourself from a radical self-acceptance neurochemical space, dude, mm. is so fucking powerful. Because we're not talking about narcissistic self-love or self-obsession. You're talking about actually having compassion for yourself mm. and forgiving yourself and accepting yourself. <sighs> People have these, talk about ecstasis and catharsis, as Jamie Wheel would say. It's, it's really transformative. And that's just me alone with the nurse. I, what subsequently, the nurse do? they hold space. They hold space. They provide a mirror. So if you're having these revelations, they nod and they, 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 they dig at you to keep going. They're not meant to introduce their own material into Why it. Why a nurse and not a therapist? Well, it's kind of the same, the, same, the same thing. You have to realize this is not fully legal yet, even though, <laughs> even though with the FDA, we're at phase three designations for breakthrough therapy. Mm. So we're almost, we're almost at full legalization. But right now, people still... Right. do it on their own if they want to experiment but anyway i then had the experience of experimenting that was just me with with the nurse who holds space but then i wanted to try that in a relationship i was gonna like say marriage counseling like what happens if i try you know mdma with my girlfriend mm. you know at the six month mark and at the nine month mark of our relationship now i believe that this ptsd idea is something that all of us to a certain degree are afflicted with. There's the trauma of just being born. There's the trauma of growing up, divorced parents, being bullied in school, being insecure, being sensitive and rejected and key moments in your life. Like we all carry hmm. trauma um, and we bring that trauma to the doorstep of every moment. In many ways, we bring that the most into our relationships and our patterns of neediness and codependency and need for control and um, have to do with these patterns. So to firstly experience that amount of self-acceptance in the face of somebody that maybe you were seeking for their validation of you, you know, so many of the interpersonal dynamics are like, you need the approval of your partner, but what happens when you approve yourself and you're able to be around somebody you love, but not need their approval? That's an interesting thing that can happen. Mm. And then also to witness them and behold them with no self-concern. Because a lot of the times I'm like, I love you, but I love you for how you make me feel. <laughs> or I love you for the fact that you're giving me companionship so I'm not lonely. Or I love you, but I want to control you. Through the MDMA lens, you get to behold them and you get to love them unconditionally. Unconditionally means you're not attached to an outcome. You're not even attached to them staying with you. You actually, that is not a concern, whether they stay with you or whether they find somebody else. In that moment, you get to know what it's like to just want them to thrive mm. simply because it feels so good to shine love on them. And that's very powerfully healing too. And I think, you know, your, your cells are a technology that turns experience into biology. So I think that in some ways, simply undergoing that open heart surgery of the psyche um, through a process of just experiential osmosis will seep into the pores of your day to day as long as you integrate and journal and talk about what has transpired. But I think for me, the powerful thing was to witness myself, um, my truest self, um, in a state in which I could be who I was 
Um, and then realizing that who I was was wonderful. Do you call back on that experience? Is that how you I try to, useful? I try to, I mean, there, there's patterns of behavior in my life that maybe are not so useful. I, I get caught up in that, the ambition bubble. I get caught up in the making money bubble. I get caught up. I go back to like, Oh, I'm lonely. Why isn't she texting me? Or, you know what I mean? Like that happens. But I, but I try to remember, I try to remember, you know, step back and like, remember, you know, we just had a neurosurgeon on um, health theory yesterday and he was talking about how you get in a um, electrical rut just the same that you can get in sort of a behavioral rut. So as the neurons begin to wire together, people understand how that creates an efficiency. But he said a lot of people don't understand that you have an electrical firing pattern that also has an ease to it. So if the default network are the things that you think all the time, then the part of what makes something yeah. in, or part of the fabric yeah. of the default network yeah. is the electrical firing pattern. And he said, one of the ways you can disrupt, um, he was talking specifically about depression is you put an electrode right into a certain part of the brain. And then like a pacemaker, it changes the electrical firing pattern. Nothing yes. changes about the physical structure of the brain, yeah. which you also can do yeah, over yeah, time. Yeah, 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 yeah. But he said, without needing to change the physical structure of the brain, just change the electrical firing pattern. Yeah. And so when I think, well, about that's what Stephen Kotler said, neurons that fire together, wire together. A thousand percent. Yeah. And what, what fascinates me is when I think about psychedelics and where, where I think when I think about where all this technology is going and the way that a single fucking session like you're talking about can create permanent and lasting change. It was something like 80 percent of people that do it in a, um, a particular setting where they're being walked through and it's yeah, a therapeutic yeah, yeah. setting. No longer meet the criteria. Fucking for crazy. Right. So I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What I know about the brain is neurons that fire together, wire together, but that's an overtime thing. So going back to what you were saying about. It's not just an overtime thing because think about trauma. That, exactly. To Singular experience, if sufficiently powerful, can that's fire together and bananas. wire together and, and scar, scar tissue. I mean, yeah. You can build muscle over time, which is to get back mm -hmm. to the long-term thing, fire together, wire together over time. But if you, if you grab a knife and slice yourself, that's going to cause an instant right. scar just from one time, not from cutting every and day. My question so is, that's how trauma works, and that's how the inverse of it works. Well, how In other does words, the inverse a, work without drugs? That's what I want to know. Not that I'm opposed to it, by the way. You know what, Dali, saying, like, you know what it, Dali said, though, no, when they asked him all about drugs? Tell. He says, I am drugs. So we are, we are. Drugs. But like we are neurochemistry, so got, nothing that is introduced by these external ecstatic technologies is, is something that cannot naturally occur in the brain. Agreed. You know, people describe the MDMA state as something similar to the post orgasmic halo, but lasting for like five hours, mm -hmm. you know? So it's, it's a highly concentrated experience and you could argue that it's like, it's kind of like you can play, you can learn to play a guitar, but then there's what happens when you turn on the guitar amplifier. You know, and so I think seen through this lens, yeah, sure, it's MDMA is not something you want to do every day. You want to integrate some of these lessons and you want to be, be able to synthesize an MDMA-like approach to living for sure because it's a glimpse of the perfect human state. But I think it's going to be a lot harder to get people to deploy the practices necessary to get there over sufficiently long amounts of time rather than to be able to offer them, which is, I believe, what these therapies are going to offer, a chance for this, this one really deeply meaningful encounter so that they can taste it for sure, mm. so that they can experientially taste it for sure, and then go back and you know fetch water and chop wood. 
you know? Yeah. To use the famous phrase. All right. I want to ask you, how do you approach learning? Like the, so you've been called a DJ of ideas. And yeah. what I really want to understand is how do you get, like, if I'm a DJ, I go to iTunes and I download a mm -hmm. song or I go to the vinyl shop and I pick up the yeah. record. How do you go about approaching getting these new ideas that you can then synthesize? I think that I, the process of finding myself in a engaged and receptive state is always going to be a kind of magical realm that I have to create the conditions for. But I, but other than that, there's nothing I can do. Do you have and a crazy so, memory? And like, so the not, I don't have any like specific disciplined practice to memorize quotes. No, I mean, Jesus. when a quote is really good, I write it down because, but, but I, but typically what makes me want to remember it is because the words make so much sense and are articulated in such a concise manner, but loaded with so much truth and, 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 and experience expository power and that they expose they, they they reveal that I can't help but want to write it down and, and remember it because it's it just feels well the same reason that there's bumper stickers with certain phrases and not with others um but it just makes me it makes me feel like like remembering that means remembering all the wisdom that is associated with that so rather than memorizing pages and pages and pages and pages and pages of knowledge, I just memorize one quote that will un that will like that that quote triggers the unconscious with by flooding all the material of of acquired knowledge related to to that quote. That if I tried to memorize those pages and pages and pages and pages, I wouldn't. You know, I'll, I'll give you one example. And again, just to answer your question of how I create how I try to learn these things is. I try to cultivate a state of mind in which I'm most receptive. And I'm most receptive typically when I'm well-rested, when I eat well, when I exercise, when I have novelty, when I'm present. You know? How do you pick your books? Or is it books? Is it something It's books, else? it's articles, it's... Uh, I have to trust serendipity. You know, I have to trust that the, 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 the dots will connect with something that... It, some hunch I've been having that's been looking for an answer and then stumbling upon the answer in like some tweet or some article that has like some link to something. And you know, that's, that's a magical space. But for example, recently, you know, I, I, I'm very interested in, in, in truth in human truth, um, in the truth that heals us, but I'm also an empirical thinker. And I believe in silent in science, mm. and I believe you you are entitled to your opinions, but not to your own facts, right? <laughs> like I, I I understand this. We we need that nowadays. And yet, right, art is the lie that reveals the truth. Mm. Um, mythology is not true from the outside, but it's true from the inside. Um, there are empirical facts, and there are poetic facts. And even though poetic facts may be less accurate than journalism in describing the details of an event, they nevertheless reveal truths that are beyond the literal grid, as Alan so de Botton said. Yeah. Um, sometimes fiction is more truthful than reality. You know, how do you reconcile this idea of like the scientific layer, the empirical objective layer of reality and the interior subjective 
level of reality with its own set of, you might call them poetic facts. So I think about this all the time because in my Shots of Awe videos, I sometimes talk about technology and innovation and, and, and the importance of scientific discovery and human enterprise and this and that. I'm talking about a lot of objective empirical things, but then I often talk about inspiration, transformation, catharsis, mm-hmm. things that, we, that, are, that are healing, that happen from within, that, that live in the realm of, of, of your own personal, personal mythology and the realm of poetic facts. And so how do you reconcile those two things? So this is a whole mind map. Of, of associations there and a th- material for a thousand videos, no doubt. And I finally found one fucking line from Ursula Le Guin that encapsulates the whole thing. This is, if I, this was a whole book of opinions and ideas and mind maps linked together. The front of the book would have this Ursula Le Guin quote and hat tip to a brain picker for tweeting it or, or writing about it. Um, Science describes accurately from the outside. Poetry describes accurately from the inside. Mm. Science explicates. Poetry implicates. Both celebrate what they describe. Boom. (laughs) (laughs) But like, I mean, how much, how dense, how beautifully dense Mm. is that? That's it, right? Science describes accurately from the outside. Poetry describes accurately from the inside. Yes. Science explicates, yes. Mm. Poetry implicates, yes. So it's like, okay, I needed to remember that because it's so fucking perfect. It's like those four sentences ring like truth, you know? They feel truth, like truth. Mm. And so that's, that will be something that then I just like, I know I have to remember that. That's going to be relevant. Humans are really fucking different. And I know, I, I know. So like when I think about the... One, I love being around you because I think you you assimilate information that I find utterly fascinating in a way that I do not assimilate it. And so mm-hmm. what what intrigues me is, would I respond to that quote if you weren't saying it? And I think the answer is no. Wow. I think I, let's assume I've read that quote. And yeah. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then just moved on. But yeah. when I hear you say it, sure. then I'm like, Fuck, and I see you doing like the movements that you do, yeah. which by the way were the same both times you did it. So there's clearly some yeah. tie for you for sure. around those words you're experiencing. Well, but that would be way. that would be an example right there of me, which could be I could be a stand-in for nature or some experience you're having. I'm violating your expectations. Mm. And that's what's making the line resonate. Whereas when you were reading or skimming or speed reading, because that's optimizing like i have friends who listen to podcasts at 2x uh, i don't know if fair do minimum yeah. okay so that might have been a line that came in front of your field of awareness and that you were like oh yeah, yeah i know what that is and what is this what is this uh that's the been there's and seen that's of the adult mind i'm like ah, uh, i reckon it you know it's just fine we all do it it's it's um it's kind of like a codec for digitizing video mm. you're taking pixels that are not changing very much in the frame and replacing them with a single stand-in mm. and the only pixels that you're changing are the ones that require changing and it makes the file size smaller. Right. So we do that same thing with the world. You know, There's certain things that we have to engage with that are changing, but the things that are static, we rely on our mental models and the binders and scene that's of the adult mind. And that is good most of the time. Right. But it's not good because it's often not a good filter um, about what gets to get in and, and, and meaningfully touch you or reach you. And my problem, which I think we 
probably both share, and maybe it's not a problem for you, but I, I call it a problem for me, is that I'm also very good at doing, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm really fucking good at it, dude. I'm like, I'm like the expert at like, uh-huh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I also know that when I go, uh-huh, yeah, then I'm like, I'm like in my head, like machinating, you know, like nothing's really, nah, 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 nah. and it's only when something goes, whoa, and I'm like, oh, uh-huh. wow, that's beautiful. That's poetry, dude, mm-hmm. right? That's poetry. Those are the moments of poetic transformation. It's like, it's like that line from Dead Poet Society when Robin Williams is saying, you know, um, science, engineering, mathematics, these are noble pursuits necessary to sustain life. But poetry, love, poetry, these are the things we stay alive for. And so I ultimately, do I want to reach people? Yes. Do I want to succeed? Yes. Do I want to make money? Yes. Do I want to feel like I'm contributing in the world? Yes. But all those things are tiny. They're things I got to tick from the box, just like Mm. eating and sleeping. So that I can then go back to the wishing well, go back to that the mythopoetic trance. I, 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 maybe I'm a Platonist. Somebody said this to me recently. I was with a psychologist who I hung out with in Brazil. So Plato wrote about the Platonic realm or the realm of ideals, um, this kind of universal um, space of consciousness where things become archetypal. I like like living in that space as much as possible. Everything else is just taking care of the mechanics, taking care of the procedures. But the but the archetypal space is the space of myth mm. sitting around the campfire, the space of inspiration, the space of being played by a melody. This is really interesting. Have you seen Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris debate? Yeah. I uh, my love thing is them. like you you guys do understand that the only problem is that you're approaching the world from fundamentally different places. Like Sam is saying that the when you look at the world through the lens of logic, it's the, it's the only way forward. And Jordan is saying when you look at the world through the lens of emotion, right? Science, the um, yeah. what you were saying in the quote, right? Yeah. The, the two differences, neither are wrong. They're just two different approaches to That's the world. Right. And when you mistake your own representation as the only representation, For sure. then you can have these two extraordinary people who who seem to really respect each other and yeah. obviously get along swimmingly. But but they're as they're debating these ideas, it's like. It, it seemed so fascinating to me that 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 one simple insight seems to be the only thing that that holds them apart, which is it is two different ways of explaining the world. Yeah, and it's funny. It's I'm glad you brought that particular example because that's exactly what they often talk about. And and I'm friends with Sam Harris. I love I love his nuanced analytical mind. Mm. Um, I've never met Jordan Peterson, but I'm a fanboy. There's a bunch of rants of his, particularly when he talks about music and transcendence or the healing power of art or how to curtail a personal crisis. Like, I think he's brilliant. He plays the piano when he talks. I see his fingers move. I'm like, oh, this guy's channeling. How brilliant. But he's also a trained clinical psychologist. So it's more interesting to see a trained clinical psychologist tackle religion than it would be to see just a religious scholar tackle religion because he understands also... uh, temperament and psychological motivations and unconscious patterns in our thinking and all these things. And he can, when he brings that into his take on religion, it's very interesting. But in that same talk, one of, one of the three talks where Peterson and Sam Harris were in debate, 
um, I guess that the subject of astronomy uh, and astrology came up. And of course, astronomy is a real science. Uh, astrology is not. Right. And so Sam Harris was clear about that. And he's like, look, you know, astronomy allows us to study the movements of the planets and it's, it's an empirical science and we've learned a lot from it and so on and so forth. Whereas, you know, some people maybe like lead their lives by astrological signs and that this is a total pseudoscience and that therefore should be dismissed. And look, I get that point that that is a valid statement in many ways. But then Jordan, Peters, Jordan Peterson's answer was very interesting because just, just what Sam Harris said alone about astrology being a form of magical thinking, therefore not useful and not, not comparable to real science like astronomy, there's truth there. But is there like a third answer here, you know? And that's where Jordan Peterson's answer was very interesting. He said, well, when you think about what astrology is, is astrology was astronomy in its earlier form mm. that essentially, you know, here we were, these, these questioning, thinking, early human, humanoids in a world that we didn't understand, a world that was fundamentally incomprehensible. And so what did we do? We looked up at the stars. We didn't understand anything. And so what we did is we looked up at the stars and we draped, we draped the cosmos with our own consciousness, mm. which is similar to what we do with cinema. Right, I mean, cinema reflects mankind's historical drive to manifest his consciousness outside of his eye, outside of his mind, in front of his eyes. Right, cinema is our own mind looking back at us. But that's so early astrology. Early astrology, we looked at the cosmos, he said, and then we draped it with our consciousness. Mm. So we we turned our minds inside out and placed our drama out in the world and labeled the stars as gods and goddesses. And all the fundamental archetypal human dramas were unfolding in this domain of the gods. But guess what? That fiction, right? That fiction was enough for these early sailors, for example, who were like fucking starship explorers before we had fucking satellite communication, draping the stars with with our minds and calling something a North star and that was sufficient for us to get on these boats and sail into the great abyss, you know? And so it may have been a fiction, but it is a fiction that willed us into action in which we bared the burden of not knowing and contending with the unknown and taking off into the darkness. And how could we ever dismiss that as not being like fundamentally wonderful? Yeah, to and me, that's that's some. I'm paraphrasing what he said, but I thought, holy that was shit, a pretty fucking good paraphrase. Holy shit, uh, I'm yeah, I'm thanks. totally on board. <laughs> it, that to me is is really interesting, and and it has become the, or maybe it's always been the central question of my life, which mm. is the ability that we have as humans to communicate through. I think of it as as film, but storytelling, right? So, mm. how do we communicate? Going back to your scientific versus poetic truth, so. Impact theory was born because I realized that 2% of the world, if I just look at you and I tell you, think this way, act this way, step one, two, three, four, do these things. And I know that while it's never going to have a universally yeah. predictable outcome, yeah. it's, it's predictable in a lot of people just based on human biology. Yeah. But there's 98, 98 
90% of the fucking world is only going to respond if I can hit them at an emotional level, mm. if I'm able to grab their attention. So when you were describing like me doing uh, as I read past something, what's really happening is for whatever reason, a certain idea either hits me emotionally or it does not. If right. it hits me emotionally, it becomes yeah. part of me. Yes. Getting back to how do you synthesize these ideas, something really has to hit me emotionally for it to disrupt my current level of right. thinking. So going back, I mean, this is all sort of coming together now to the beginning of our conversation. Like what are the things that gobsmack you that really make you recontextualize yourself, rethink yeah. of your own knowledge? Yeah. And for me, it's things that hit you at an emotional level. So when Same. I think about... You but know, but even that is still have that has to do with pattern recognition. Like even something hitting you emotionally is because the dots are connecting in a certain way that's triggering some association that's making you respond to that. But it has to do also with your filters of pattern recognition. So the brain is a is doing two things at once. It's inhibiting your response to the incoming data, and it's searching for meaningful connections. And it has to do that because if your brain didn't inhibit, you'd be overwhelmed by all the information coming and you'd be incoherent you'd be schizophrenic like you everything that's what schizophrenia is everything is embedded with meaning all the time so it's like this sign is the illuminati and they're spying on me and that camera is surveillance and, and the ai you know what i mean like that's what that's that's the the disease of that of that's that kind really of mental illness where they see meaning everywhere and mm -hmm. so we have to inhibit and filter out what we determine as being fundamentally unmeaningful but in some sense, schizophrenics are suffering from the truth. It's just that the truth doesn't let us do anything with it because everything is meaningful, right? All of this is made of atoms. This is powered by electricity. That's meaningful. This is a beautiful design that incorporates mathematics that makes us stand like this. You know, that light is powered by electricity, which is also meaningful. That television is, every, I mean, everything mm. is meaningful, but we can't engage with everything all the time, so we inhibit but that inhibitory muscle, in order to concentrate, in order to focus, in order to get things down, can also metastasize and can make us go, uh-huh. So once in a while, we throw ourselves into new environments because new environments are more likely to register something emotionally meaningful. It's more likely to do that simply because you don't have it already mapped. You can't go, uh-huh, because it's all new. But you also, that's just the external work of putting yourself in a new place the other thing is what agent do you introduce internally mm -hmm. to make you to heighten pattern recognition and make you more receptive for something to register emotionally for example marijuana does that the first Not thing that marijuana mean. the first thing that marijuana does is flood you with dopamine which increases pattern recognition some people get paranoid or anxious when they're on pot because the first thing that happens when they start getting more signals is they interpret those signals as anxiety inducing because they're just they're getting too much data and they don't know what to do with it. But maybe that's just they smoke too much pot. You know, a little less pot in the right environment might flood them with the same dopamine, but instead they're getting this dopamine hit at a pace they can absorb. And then they start connecting the dots in a new way without being overwhelmed. And then it can be real positive. And then whatever's in front of you is more likely to register emotionally. And then you're like, holy shit, I'm getting all these interesting ideas and da 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 And so maybe it's not pop, maybe it's meditation. Maybe it's doing the fucking cold shower plunge for 15 minutes before you know, opening up these, this book to see if it engages you. Just something that's going to prime you to be more open and more receptive, mm. right? And one of the descriptions of the phenomenolo phenomenological effects of cannabis is that it what increases... What the fuck is that word? Phenomenology is like subjectivity. Okay. Phenomenology is the study of, of, of like first person, of experience from inside out. Is that cannabis, and again, I think 
Anything that cultivates a capacity to be present will do this. But that cannabis increases reactivity to stimuli both from within and from without. So when you make yourself more porous to the incoming signals, you're disinhibiting the inhibitory functions of the mind. You're making yourself a little more, I don't want to say crazy, but you're making yourself a little more like a person who's paying attention to the seemingly irrelevant and then connecting the dots in a new way. That's why creative people flirt with crazy people in that sense because crazy is simply no inhibition whatsoever. And so everything is coming in and in a disorganized manner, right? But like creativity is also disinhibiting somewhat. And I think these things exist on a spectrum. So what you want to do, it's not like on off. What you want to be able is to, to, to kind of move the knob and bring it to a place where you're like getting more pattern recognition, but not to a place where you're seeing patternicity and seeing patterns where there are none. That's a different thing, but they're both on a spectrum, right? Here is very limited things are connecting for you. You're very, very, very sober. Here it's like, oh, the dots are connecting. I'm seeing increased information and increased data, but it's at a rate that's interpretable and useful. And then all the way up here, it's like, okay, I'm seeing patterns <laughs> everywhere. And this is like somebody who got too stoned at a party and is getting really paranoid because they think everybody can tell they're high. That's really just them misreading a situation because they have too much dopamine and too much pattern recognition. And so they're actually seeing patterns that aren't there. So interesting. I wish weed hit me like that. Like when I hear people for whom it really works, mm -hmm. talk about it. I'm mm -hmm. like, oh man, that sounds amazing. Mm -hmm. And then I try it and it just, it, it feels like someone is pressing play and pause on my brain. It doesn't feel like I have some cool new amount of yeah. stuff coming in. Yeah. And actually one of the ways that it makes me feel, and this comes back to what I was saying about speaking to people on an emotional level. I don't, I don't have any intellectual experience with the anxiety. It is purely a sense deep in my body of unease. Mm -hmm. And what I like about speaking to somebody emotional is you're speaking to the body and the body's a lot harder to ignore than the mind. And once you've got somebody at a body level where they feel it's something visceral, they may not even know how to interpret it, but they have that feeling. This is why I think it's so critical that at Impact Theory, we develop the ability to communicate in the language of emotion. So going back to what you're saying about you've got science and you've got the yeah. poetry, but I'll say poetry is the language of, of, of emotion. Yeah, it's, sure. it's a body talk. It's getting to somebody in a way that they feel far more in a, than just in a way that they understand. Mm -hmm. And because I think humans are so different and because I think so few people have done the work to connect the mind and the body so that they can interpret the signals, mm -hmm. it's like the only way to grab their fucking attention is to make them feel something, to give them the chills, to make them sad, to make them laugh, to make them happy, whatever. And then I think it has the priming effect that you're talking of making them more porous so that the ideas can come in. And I don't know if it's just it, it sort of bumps them into a slightly different state of, of course being, it does. Of course but it does. that's where it gets interesting. And when I think Think about how much in my life I've been influenced by movies because they lower my defenses. Of like course. I remember when I saw The Matrix, yeah. the before it hit theaters, yeah. I got a ticket to go see it at yeah. Warner Brothers Studios. And I had never once ever in my life made noise during a movie other than to laugh. Yeah. And when Trinity jumps up and the camera moves around her, I screamed out loud. And as I'm screaming, realize everyone else in the theater is screaming. And I realized that's not true. At the time, I didn't realize shit. I was just going for a ride. But now looking back, I realized, whoa, like I was just in a different place. Mm -hmm. For me to 
be screaming before I even realize that I'm screaming. Yeah. You you get to that notion you say of dis um, disinhibiting people. Well, the, which but is that's that's the function of the the movie theater having a massive screen, mm. high fidelity surround sound, violating your expectations with a counterintuitive narrative. Because when a film is formulaic and predictable, then it doesn't violate your expectations, and so you go, uh, I know what this film is. Um, so when a film does all those things, when it deploys the tools of counterintuitive original storytelling, massively amplified sound and sight and image, comfortable chair in the dark so you're not self-conscious about how you come across when you're reacting to what's happening. I'm telling you, if movies were watched with the lights on, people wouldn't so, get as immersed. Yeah. All those things are performing the same function as what the cannabis example I was saying before of increasing your reactivity to the stimuli, both from within and from without, right? Because so your own thoughts and responses and your own capacity to absorb what's coming in. Cannabis is just like adding Astroglide to that. <laughs> so that you're, you're allowing, you you're allowing the down? cinema, you're allowing the cinema to literally like I can't even, you. I, but, but I, I hate to be so, so violent. I and love something, it. But it's like, it's like you want, the film to like to to penetrate you, right? And so and so I can't pay attention and so to the fucking anything, narrative. Though. Anything I literally can't hold on to it. To to when if I'm high, I I oh, can't. Because you were too high. Am I watching the movie? No, because no, you, you were too high. I, I will let you dictate the dose because I really <laughs> I would love something. Yeah. And I don't. I would obviously prefer it be internal, but yeah. I don't mind exogenous. I'm yeah. very open yeah, to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it, if it is reliably right. effective yes i'm all for it yeah, yeah, yeah. and i just yeah i don't know man and i am trust me when i'm say i when i say yeah. i am very open to i'm just doing it wrong yeah. super yay cool look if i think i think can, i think the the way to you to think of all of these things is as tools right like you can learn to talk without a microphone man but sometimes and i don't know if you're going to do this on this show but i recommend getting a your headphones. headphones for mm. for both you and the guest. It's super weird, yeah. In a great way. I well, love some it. people find it weird, but I was going to say what that does is it allows you to hear yourself amplified in your own ears, and that feedback loop actually makes your speech, in my case, more precise. That's interesting. Somehow, the the echo effect of hearing myself mm. here makes the nuance of every word more interesting, and makes me less likely to feel pressured to come up with an original way of saying something because just the off-the-cuff quality of human language becomes enough and somehow it somehow it disarms me even more. That's what? just a thought I had. But again, this is a tool, mm -hmm. right? You don't need this tool. A bicycle, right? You can walk and train your calves and run and jog and do all those things. You don't need the bicycle, but the bicycle is just a different instrument. And through riding the bicycle, you interface with the world differently. And I'm not saying you should be dependent on the bicycle like walk too but sometimes you want to bring the bicycle in because it's different mm. you know and so think of think of all these things as that the microphones the guitar amplifier you can play the acoustic guitar sometimes you want the electric guitar i'm not saying that cannabis or mdma for therapy are things we need to depend on but i think they're tools that are coming out of the closet and being legitimized as effective lifestyle tools that mm. we can deploy to help heal ourselves you know man i cannot think of a, a better place to end we got to wrap because i know you got to get the fuck out of here but dude thank you so much for thank kicking you, this man. off and and just being you this is so much fun i cannot believe how fast the time went so dude i, I want know. to salute you and celebrate you thank you for having me 
it's a, it's an honor. I um, your hustle and your muscle and your scale is is beautiful and admirable, and um, I just I just wanna I just wanna thank you for including me because I I often feel um, not imposter syndrome, but there's definitely a sense somehow of like you know, what if I don't deliver takeaways? What if people don't, you know, don't learn anything other than hear the spectacle that is me talking? But then, but then like you make me feel welcome and, and I just really appreciate that. Dude, you are welcome here anytime, yeah. my friend, anytime. Thanks. Is there anything you want to tell people about before you go? Yes. Um, follow me on the interwebs. I always like uh, to engage with people uh, on my social channels. I'm, uh, Facebook is great. At Jason L. Silva. Uh, Instagram, I hear, is the one to focus on these days. So I am <laughs> trying to grow that as well. So at Jason L. Silva on Instagram as well. Um, and yeah, Shots of on YouTube. I'm, I'm going to be producing a six-episode limited-run uh, video podcast conversation thing nice. with a couple of people. Um I don't know how you have the stamina to do this all the time. I, I bow down before you, but I'm going to be recording uh, probably six conversations. One of the people is going to be Michael Pollan. So keep an eye out for that. Um, Where and what's it going to be called? Probably Flow Sessions. Nice. Yeah. I like that. I'm Some, down. Something like and that. And you're going to do podcasts and YouTube? It'll be video conversations, mm. but just just six episodes. But um, I think it's for people who who want to see me maybe unpack some of the ideas with some of the people that I often quote. Yes, that's kind of, that's kind of the that's how we're picking some of the people. I'm like, yes, oh, let's find who are the most. Let's look through my footage. Who are the people I quote the most? And let's have me then like engage with them and see if we can get somewhere deeper. So that should be interesting. That will be really interesting. Yeah, count me in, man. Thanks, bro. Awesome, beautiful. Well, thanks again. Thanks for having right, me. Peace out, everybody. Cheers. Later. If you want to finally take control of your health and stop struggling with a lack of focus, feeling sluggish, and just not being your best, then you need to fulfill all the nutritional needs your body has every single day. You can do that easily and simply with AG1. If you're a longtime listener, you might know I've been supporting AG1 for many years. That's because AG1 is a foundational nutritional supplement. And you guys know me, I do not normally eat supplements. AG1 is basically it. It is a supplement that truly supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. And what I like is that they're basically grounding up real vegetables. It is about as close to eating the real thing as you're going to get. Since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition continuously refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. AG1 supports your whole body with 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food source nutrients in every serving to support optimal health of your brain, body, and gut. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Click the link in the show notes or just go to drinkag1.com slash impact. That's drinkag1, the number, dot com slash impact. Check it out. What's up, guys? If there's something going on with your body that you just can't quite figure out what it's coming from, 
I'm going to bet that the problem has something to do with your gut health. So what can you do to feel better? Well, everybody's body is different, and that's why our sponsor, Viome, uses an at-home gut intelligence test to analyze your microbiome. Then they provide you with a personalized pre- and probiotic formula that can help restore balance to your body. They also recommend what foods you should eat and which ones you shouldn't eat based on your test results. I've had the founder of Viome, Naveen Jain, on the show several times, and he always has incredible updates about the science linking your microbiome to the rest of your health. And as you guys know, with everything that Lisa went through, we know firsthand that your gut health, if you fix that, you're going to solve so many other problems in your life. Go to tryviome.com slash impact and use code impact to get 20% off your first three months and free shipping. All right, that's T-R-Y-V-I-O-M-E.com slash impact with the code impact for 20% off your first three months and free shipping.